we are going through uh, kind of a fun new Sunday school class. Um, but before I get going on anything else, just because it came up last week and I want to address it here. Um, we're talking about Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Clay Aiken dream coat. So, <laughs> we're talking about Joseph. And we mentioned that the Hebrew word in Genesis, uh, talking about his coat, uh, was pak, having to do with the hands, or more literally, the extremities. Um, because both Hebrew and Greek, there is no word for hands. It's the end of the thing. So people are always, did Jesus get a nail in his palm or his wrist? What does the Bible say? The end of the arm. That's what the Bible says. So, with this, it's, how do you do with the hands of the extremities? What exactly does that mean in Hebrew? Could have meant handmade, but again, as we said last week, everything was handmade back then. More likely, it's a tunic that went down to the wrists or down to the to the ankles, it went all the way down to the extremities. In other words, a fancy tunic no laborer like his brothers would have ever gotten to wear, right? So when you talk about the, his pock tunic, his pock robe, his pock coat, whatever you want to call it, it's talking about one that you go, fancy, nobody that's working out the fields is going to wear something like this. But the Bible never says anything about colors. Or even about ornamentation, even though most Bibles will talk about his ornate robe or his very colored robe or whatever. The Bible never says that. It's a pock robe. It's an extremities robe. So, somebody asked, how did we get that? And I, I realized I hadn't done research on, well, where did that come from? The Septuagint, the, the, Greek, the Jewish Greek translation of the Old Testament that was produced in the 3rd century, translated it as poikilon meaning varied, or diverse, or complicated. In the New Testament, they talk about people speaking in, in varied and diverse tongues, or God works in diverse sorts of ways. That's the word it's talking about. Complexity. So, it became known as a complex coat, or a coat of various pieces, or a coat of multiple different colored cloths. That's how people, it's like, it's, it's a pock robe, it's a fancy robe, it's an ornate, it's complicated. You know, it's like it had a lot of little pieces in it. You mean like a patchwork quilt? Maybe, but in a fancy sort of way. So like lots of different colors, yeah. So people want, oh, many colors. But not really. But that's why even the NAS, which is, I love the New American Standard Version, it's the most literal translation of scripture. Even the NAS calls it very colored. Though... It has absolutely nothing about colors whatsoever, but that's the way people think about it, given how we have perceived it as a culture, right? Anyway, we're talking about misperceptions in this class, cultural misperceptions, things that we assume that we know about the Bible, but that's not what the Bible is actually saying. We talked about multiple ones. We talked about tithing the first week. We talked about a whole litany of ones last week that we're going to kind of pick up on and finish off with this week. What we're focusing on last week in this one is specifically cultural depictions. Things that we that we know from scripture because we saw it in Vigitales Tales or we saw it in the Ten Commandments or because we everybody knows because I've seen the the you know the paintings that God made of Moses on the mouth, etc. So true or false? Jesus had a brother named James. True or false? True. Brother, if you like it. It's not quite that simple. And this is something that Michael was getting at, so I hope Michael is going to join us today, but we'll just have to see. 
Yes and no. We'll get to that in a second. But let me go back to something since we got like a different cross-section of people than we had last time. Do you remember who the iconoclasts were in history? They didn't like the uh, depiction of uh, Jesus or God or anybody because it's an idol. Right. Well, because it's an idol, but it can be at least, but also because the moment you paint Jesus, that's the mental picture that somebody gets of Jesus, right? It is by definition limiting. So did Jesus look like a Nordic blonde-haired guy, like all the Nordic people like to paint? No, no, Jesus, there's, there's a whole movement of black Jesus, where African-American churches will paint him as an African-American. That's what Jesus looked like. No, 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 no. Jesus looked like a dumpy, short, short-haired, normal-looking Jewish guy. There's a whole new movement of people saying, that's what he looked like. But a bunch of evangelicals in America go, no, that's not my Jesus. Because everybody's got their own mental picture of Jesus. Why? In large part because they've seen pictures of Jesus. It's not a bad thing necessarily, but it's an inherently dangerous thing and an inherently limiting thing. Plus, the moment you say, I want to paint God, so do you paint Jesus? Do you paint the Holy Spirit? Do you paint God the Father? If you paint God the Father, what does he look like? All these different things, it is inherently limiting. Plus, as Randy said, almost invariably, if you do that enough, people start worshiping that image. Look, I made this beautiful statue of Mary. Then let's pray to that. You know, I made this wonderful icon of St. Vladimir. Oh, okay, if I kiss it, do I get healthy? You know, we start thinking that the thing is worth worshiping. So, what I wanted you to pull from that is, depictions are tricky. They're not bad, and they can be awfully helpful for people to wrap their minds around, but they're tricky. And the very simplicity that makes them accessible to people can also really mess people up. They can oversimplify things or even change stories. So even as you say, oh, but now the little kids understand, they understand uh, Moses better because we talked about it being almost like a roundup from a cowboy, and you go, almost like. But that's just your sketch of the Bible. It's not the Bible, right? It's your cartoon version of the Bible. It's not the Bible itself. If it helps you understand the Bible, great. If this becomes the Bible for you, that's a problem. If you are more familiar with the cultural depictions than with scripture itself, that's a problem. By the way, we'll be talking about, it kind of echoes, did just realize this, it kind of echoes what we'll be talking about in the sermon today, so hold on to that thought for another hour. Okay, so we were talking about some Old Testament people, we're going to pick up with Samson, because that's Samson, right? I know that's Samson. He had longer hair. He did, okay, fine. <laughs> Big buff guy with long hair, super strength until Delilah cut his hair, yes? Yeah, no part of that is true. Well, except for the super strength. What? He was. He didn't look strong. I'm sorry. He was. Well, we don't know. That's the beauty of it. I love all these depictions. This one, this middle one, man, there's so many things wrong with that. I don't even have time to go into so many things wrong with that picture. But, first off, somebody do me a favor. Open up your Bibles. Read Judges 13, 2 through 5, and then somebody else read Judges 14, 5 and 6. It's a Bible sword drill. And we'll be reading various scriptures today, so pull out your pipples. Judges 13, 2 through 5. I know. A certain man of Zora named Manoah um, from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was sterile and remained childless. The angels of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are sterile and childless, but you are going to conceive and have a son. 
Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean, because you will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor may be used on his head, because the boy is to be a Nazarite. Set apart to God from birth, and he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. So this Nazarite vow from the very get-go, from, from the womb, basically. Now 14, 5, and 6, who had that one? Samson went down to Timnah to gather with his father and mother. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring toward them. Five and six. Did that with, or go to the second The spirit of the Lord came upon him in power so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a hand bone. But he told neither his father nor his mother. Okay. So, Samson may very well have been big and buff. It's possible. But we don't know. We have absolutely no no description of his physical appearance in scripture whatsoever, other than we can assume he had long hair because no razor had ever touched his head. So, okay. Long hair. Is he a big, buff-looking guy? Like Eric said, I, I don't know. It never describes him as big and buff. Maybe. But his supernatural strength is consistently shown to be a spiritual gift, not a physical one, right? Every single time we ever see him doing something physically impressive, we're told that the Spirit came upon him, and he did this. God filled him with supernatural strength, and he did this. He rips the city gates and carries them, not because his muscles are that big, but because his God is that big, right? So maybe he does. Maybe that's great. But when his hair is eventually cut, he's shown to be physically weak as any normal guy. Not, well, now I just, re now I just have to rely on my utter huge manliness. Go, no, he's still just a guy, right? I don't know how big he was. Which means we have no idea how muscular he was. So why do we keep picturing him as muscular? This is I love Christian action figures. It's, it's an interesting concept. Why do we keep picturing him as this big muscle-bound guy? Because strong men today look like Yeah. Superman doesn't look scrawny. You know, yes, he looks like somebody who can push a plane. No, he looks like big, but it's not proportionate to what his strength is. When we, when we think of strong people, we think of muscle, muscular guys. Why is that potentially dangerous? Why is that potentially detrimental to our understanding of Samson? Potentially taking God out of the picture. Yeah, why is Samson strong? Well, just look at him. He's physically strong because he looks physically strong, doesn't he? Yeah. I don't think it's symbolism. Like, I don't know if they really misunderstood it, but a lot of times we want to visualize things the way it really is spiritually. Mm hmm and, like, descriptions and revelation or whatever, it's not all, like, that's really what it is. Yeah. It's a spiritual description. Did he really eat a scroll? I, I, maybe, but I also think that might have been, no, this is a message and you're going to devour it. You know? But yes, we like to concretize everything, actually. I mean, we don't always like to concretize things. But we like to say something. I want a physical, tangible, mental picture of something spiritual. If I were to talk about Jesus you probably have a mental picture of Jesus, or various mental pictures of Jesus. If I were to talk about God the Father, do you have a mental picture that comes to your mind about God the Father? Possibly. Possibly not. If I say the Holy Spirit, do you have a mental picture of the Holy Spirit? There should be a sliding scale of nodding going on with these things. But here's the interesting thing. We're not really, just, we're not really shown what God the 
Father looks like in Scripture either. And we're told God the Father is spirit. So why do we have a mental picture of God the Father? Because we want one. Like, but he's a person. So is the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is a person. It gets a little complicated. But yes, we want to concretize these things. Somebody read uh, Judges 15, 18 to 21. Now Samson was very thirsty, and he cried out to the Lord, You have accomplished this great victory by the strength of your servant. Must I die of thirst and maybe, fall uh, into the hands? Maybe I screwed that up. Maybe 16? 18 Now 20? I do have a little different version. Yeah. Maybe that's messing you up. No, I might have done this wrong. What's 18? Uh, no, and 16, I apologize. So I 16, 16, to it? 16, no, 16, 18 through 21. The, I, I, I got carried, I did that wrong. It should it'd be a different oh, chapter. Okay. It's a Delilah title. realized he had finally told her the truth, so she sent for the Philistine leaders. Come back one more time, she said, for he has told me everything. So the Philistine leaders returned and brought the money with them. Delilah lured, lured Sanson to sleep with his head in her lap, and she called in a man to shave his head, making his capture certain. And his strength left him. Then she cried out, Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. When he woke up, he thought, I will do, I will do as before and make and shake myself free. But he didn't realize the Lord had left him. Oh, and twenty one. So the Philistines captured him and gorged out his eyes. They took him to Gaza, where he was bound with bronze chains and made to grind grain. So Delilah never cut Samson's hair, right? She called somebody in to cut Samson's hair. Now, it's a small thing. But we always... I mean, how many of those pictures did I show you where Delilah's cutting Samson's hair? In the Bible miniseries on TV going, we've got all these pastors together to make sure that we're being biblically accurate. And here's the scene where Delilah cuts Samson's hair. Over and over again... We're told that Delilah cut Samson's hair. There's whole jokes about Delilah being a barber and all this kind of stuff because she's cutting Samson's hair. Don't trust a woman with scissors. Why? Because Delilah cut Samson's hair. Did Delilah cut Samson's hair? No. Is that a big deal? I mean, everybody knows the story that way, and that's okay, right? Does it really change the story? Is that is that, that big a deal? In that, because where's the sliding scale? At what point does inaccuracy become not okay? It's absolutely fine if you remember the story wrong. So Delilah cut Samson's hair. Fine. So uh, Jesus told the Philistines, uh, I could have called down legions of angels, right? It's no big deal. So Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He, he, he swooned. But then he came back to life because he never really completely died. At what point do you go, well, no, that inaccuracy is bad. The other inaccuracies are fine, but that inaccuracy is bad. As long as it rings true to me, it's okay, isn't it? Well, in this case, though, Delilah was the one who ordered the haircut. She was holding his head when someone else cut it. So, like, she was the instrumental force in it being cut, even if she didn't pull it. Right, so if I make a painting with Delilah holding the razor, cutting his hair, that's fine. And if that's the way everybody remembers the story, it's okay. It's only, it, it's only inaccurate in the details. Don't learn the Bible inaccurately. Don't do that. It's inherently problematic. Uh, there's a 
comedian named Tim Hawkins, a Christian comedian, that's turned a whole joke, did a whole song about Delilah. There's a modern contemporary song called Either Delilah and did a whole song about Delilah cutting Samson's hair. Because that's what happened in the story, right? And then he made a whole joke halfway through the, through, the, through the song when he started talking about it and then they gouged out Samson's eyes that nobody knows that. Even when he's singing it to Christians, he's like, by the way, this is a Bible story. And here he's cutting out, you know, they're gouging out his eyes. You guys didn't even know that, did you? You know what? Because most people don't. Most people have no clue when they hear about that he's got his eyes gouged out there. Wait, what just happened? Because it's a familiar story that people don't know. By the way, though, we got a clue on the very last thing you read in the scripture. What was he relegated to do? He was treading grain? Mm -hmm. He got to be a pretty buff guy to do that. Possibly so. Possibly so. <laughs> it also, oxen. since. He used oxen to do that. Yeah. But then again, it also could be part of the joke. That. Here's this guy that can't really do this. This is what he's doing. I have no idea. But you're right. But the reason I think that we picture that is not because of that verse. I think the reason we picture this is because he's got to be strong. Look at how strong he is. Recent study. But you're right. I hear what you're saying. A recent study indicated that 80% of Americans said that they believed that the Bible is God's word. And you might say, really? That's what the study said. 80% of Americans believe that they thought the Bible is God's word. 23% of those people never read any of it. 23% of the people, even though 80% said we genuinely think, yeah, sure, that's God's word. No. 23% never really read any of it. I mean, they might have read part of it, maybe a few sentences here and there, but they've never really read it. And only 20% have read all of it. All these people would say, oh, yes, we think it's God's word. Really? Only one-fifth of the people who said that they thought God's, the, the Bible is God's word, one-fifth of those people have actually read the whole thing. Even though they say, yeah, it should be obeyed. What should be obeyed? The Bible. But four-fifths of you haven't even read the Bible that you say should be obeyed. According to the study, more than 60% of Americans cannot name half of the Ten Commandments, or for that matter, half of the Gospels. Four Gospels, can you tell me four of them? I can tell you maybe one or two of them. John, Paul, Ringo. 80% of born-again Christians, born-again Christians, people who say, I consider myself a born-again Christian. 80% of those people in the respondents who call themselves born-again Christians believe that God helps those who help themselves is a direct quote from the Bible, which I hope you understand it is not. If, as the study also indicates, only 45% of those who regularly attend church read their Bibles more than that time each week that they go to church, <coughs> less than half of them, of people who say, I'm a born-again Christian and I go to church regularly, less than half of them read their Bibles outside of that church setting. Why do people have so many misconceptions about the Bible? Does it, does it make sense? Where are people getting their conceptions? If they're not reading their Bibles, where do they get their conceptions of what's in the Bible? That's an actual question. Yeah, yeah. Sunday school. Sunday school. Listening to their teacher, listening to their pastor. Okay, that's one thing. Media. Media. Movies. Movies. Friends. Friends, general conceptions around them. Most people think who think they know what the Bible says 
At least according to this study. You might say, I disagree with that. Okay, maybe the numbers are shifted, but not that much. Most people who think that they know the Bible know it because somebody else told them stuff about it, and they never looked it up for themselves, and they said, yeah, okay. Sure. David and Goliath. Love David and Goliath. One of my favorite stories. As an example to all little kids, young boy David stood against giant Goliath with only a sling because he trusted God and didn't need any armor, right? Because of his faith in God. No. Yeah, exactly. Okay, first off, let's go back. Judges 20 tells us that the tribe of Benjamin, who David grew up right next to, um, pretty much alongside, was renowned for using slingshots. The Benjamites uh, mobilized 26,000 swordsmen from their towns, in addition to 700 chosen men from those living in Gibeah. Among all these soldiers, there were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Each of them could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. They were famous for slingshotting. That area that, that, that he grew up in, they were famous for this. It may not sound particularly impressive, but modern soldiers still use slingshots, especially in the Middle East. They're really tremendously effective. They're silent, and if you're good at it, well, you can throw projectiles that hit their target going about 100 miles an hour. That's significant, isn't it? Question back up. Yeah. Um, was David left-handed? Because they were all left-handed. These guys were. I have no idea. Why they why they're left-handed? Are they better at but, it than right-handed? That's a good question. Do you think I get back and maybe have to research more? Um, actually, I could. No, I'm not going to assume anything. I, I had some. I had some military history suggestions, but I don't want to jump to that. So I don't know. I'll look that up for you. But that's about as fast as a golf ball is coming coming off the tee from a professional golfer. So if you say slingshot, I just don't think that's significant. The next time Tiger Woods is 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 going to tee off, lay your head right in front of the tee. Then see how well you survive getting hit by a golf ball as it comes off the tee from a line rod from a professional golfer. It's deadly. Right? Okay, so I just want you to get that out of your head. The problem is, most Americans, if you ask them, when they think about a slingshot, this is what they picture, right? Especially if you're talking about a boy. You're like, a boy with a slingshot. They go, that, that's the mental picture. When this should be the mental picture that we have of David with his slingshot, uh, looks like he's right-handed here, so <laughs> we can trust the cultural depiction, I'm sure. Again, David, we talked about this when we were talking about David. David was not necessarily a boy, but probably wasn't a boy at the time he killed Goliath. The Hebrew word here in 1 Samuel 17.32 can indicate anything from a, a child, it could be a boy, but all the way up through like young adult, like upper teenager. That can all be what David was. King Saul, when he used that term for David, was being disparaging. What's a mere boy like you able to do this? You you can't do this. So it's possible he did mean you're a little kid. It's also possible he meant you're nothing. I was saying he could have possibly meant untrained soldier. Sure. You know, he may have been 25, 30. Well, yeah, I mean, it's... it's he saw he was untrained. As long as you're still talking about it, you, you're, you're right. I suppose he could have been using the term ironically then, too. But we're told in verses 34 through 36 that David had, by that time, already killed lions and bears as part of his job as a shepherd. Maybe he was, maybe, Davy Crockett, 
you know, he, he, could, he, he could, he could be that good. It's possible, but odds are, since also in verse 51, he used Goliath's own massive sword to decapitate Goliath, I'm pretty sure he's not a little kid. Then, let's go back to something that, that Randy said about the armor. Somebody read 1 Samuel 17, 38-39. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on a sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. Why can I go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took off his staff and his I don't know. You don't have So why didn't David wear any armor against Goliath? It was uncomfortable. It didn't say it was too small. It doesn't say it was too small, did it? It said it was uncomfortable. It was a strategic decision. But yeah, it was a strategic decision. Now, if you do want to, I, I will, I'm not going to completely discount what, what uh, Randy said earlier about it. It didn't fit him. Because if you want to read some background on that, what do we know about King Saul himself physically from back in 1 Samuel 9 2? He stood ahead taller than everybody else. Which is why that Goliath episode is so interesting. Because. The Philistines said, we're sending out our biggest guy to fight your biggest guy. To which Saul said, who will go and fight for Israel? You're the biggest guy. Who will go and fight for Israel? You're the biggest guy. Who will? All right. So, even if David had been used to wearing armor, it probably didn't fit him. Because it was designed for somebody a head taller than everybody else. I have no idea how tall David was. But the Bible doesn't say anything about he didn't wear the armor because it was too big. It says he didn't wear the armor because he wasn't used to it. He wasn't comfortable with it. But he killed before. He he'd done combat before, right? So he was a warrior. That that was his whole argument. I killed the lion. I killed the bear. I can kill this Philistine. He's a warrior that doesn't use armor. So savvy fighter David says, no, no. I'm going to do what I know. I know, I know slingshots. I tell you what, there's a big guy with lots of armor who's a lot stronger than I am and whose spear is like 90 feet long. Hey, I know. How about I stay agile, quick, and at a distance? That sounds like a good idea. How many people have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Be honest. Okay, if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, and in the city square... There's a giant swordsman who's really good with a sword. How should you fight it? Shoot him. That's right. Because there's a classic scene where there's this giant Arab swordsman. He's like, oh. And Indiana Jones comes up, and that whole crowd clears out, and they're going to have this big fight. And they'd actually choreographed a big, huge fight. But Harrison Ford had dysentery. And so they said, he's like, I just, guys, I've got a fever. It's 100 million out here. Feel horrible. And they said, Well, what would you do? I'd shoot it. And went, Oh, that's right, you've got a gun. Why would you? Why would you grapple with the guy who's twice your size and has a sword and you don't? It's like, I, I have a projectile, I can kill him from a distance. Okay, do that. Well, that's just what David did. It's like, why why would I do this? Okay, you've got a tank coming against you, and you what do you do? Do you go up and you just hit it with a knife? over and over and hope that you eventually take it out? Or do you go, I, I have an anti-tank missile. We'll do that from behind a dune somewhere. I mean, don't go up against the tank. 
It's a better counterpoint to that anyway. Okay. So what can you learn from that version of the story? I know, and people can say, it demystifies it. It's no fun. It's fun. What do you learn from that? David didn't use the armor that he was unfamiliar with that Saul was putting his faith in, or not, because Saul didn't go out to fight. Instead, he's like, no, I'm going to do what I know. I'm, I can do this. Somebody needs to fight this guy. He's speaking ill, not only of Israel, but of our God. I can do this with what I know. Apply it. What do you, what can you, how can you apply this version of the story to, to life? It's not the underdog story that everybody wants it to be, because you had one trained fighter in, it was just really different styles, as opposed to one giant fighter and somebody who had no clue. It was two very well-trained fighters five different ways. Though I will say, even at the time, even in scripture, it's perceived as an underdog. Because even when when it comes out, Goliath's like, what? You know. So it, even then, it would have been perceived as an underdog, but you look at it and you go, because you're judging on the wrong pieces. Yeah. Well, through Scripture, he put his trust in God, yep. but he used his own wisdom to do it. I'll even say he used his God-given wisdom. Yeah. It's like, so is David trusting in God, or is he trusting in himself? Yeah. Well, look here. Well, yeah, go ahead. He, he had a history with God. Yes. He had gone against the lion and the bear. God had delivered him in those cases. He knew he used his skill, but he had God's help. He would do it again. That's not for you. That's exactly where I was going. Is when he described having gotten, having killed the bear and having killed the lion, he said, God delivered me out of the paw of that lion, out of the paw of that bear, and he'll deliver me out of the paw, same word, of that Philistine. It's like, did he trust in himself? Ish. What he trusted in was the history he'd already had with God. So it's, it's like, well, he's just this little boy that says, I can't do this, but God can. You go, no. He's a young man that says, I can do this because God has already done this sort of thing through me, through things. And you guys are just sitting here and letting this happen because you were afraid. Do something. How, how big is God in your head? Isn't he bigger than this Philistine? So I'm going to use what I know because why wouldn't I? I'm going to use what God has given me. Why wouldn't I? I'm going to use what God has already given me. I'm not necessarily going to say, well, if I'm going to do this, things have to change. But somebody needs to do this. I can do this. With what God has already resourced me with, I can, I can do this. Absolutely. What about you? As you're going through things in life, does something have to, I mean, you're just you. But if you were going to deal with this serious issue, then you've got to really bulk up. I mean, there's no way God could expect you to do X, Y, or Z, or to face this big, scary thing. Clearly not. Maybe maybe you could find some, call, call, call Pastor Kevin, and he will deal with, or maybe you can do this, or maybe if you, Randy's an elder, he could come and help you with it. Or maybe if, okay, maybe if what I, what I need is a class where I can bulk up on, none of that hurts. I mean, it makes total sense to say, any kind of support I can get is great. But if God says, Lucy, I need you to step out in this. I need you to step out in this right now. Can you? Peter, walk out on water. Can you? If God says, walk on the water, you can walk on the water. If God says, you can take down Goliath, then you can take down Goliath. And not because, well, you're so capable. 
But not because, well, you're incapable and God is. Because God works in you. And if he's calling you to do this, God will work in you. It's not you doing it. But it's also not, God certainly can't use somebody like me. It's the people he always works with. Everybody he works with. Remember when we talked about Moses? Was Moses Charlton Heston? Man, I like to think so. But no! I love the Ten Commandments. And no, Moses is not Charlton Heston. He was a lying, murderous, weasel kept wanting to get out of work kind of guy who was not a very good talker and made Aaron do what he was what Moses was supposed to do. Who grew into a great leader because God said, no, I'm calling you to do this. Step out. And with every successive plague, we see Moses more and more stepping into the role that God had specifically called him to. It's like, yeah, we love to go, Moses, Charlton Heston. Why? Because God couldn't use somebody like me. He could only use people like Charlton Heston. No, he uses people like you. Think about how many inaccuracies people have had about this story over the years and how many lessons we have wrongly derived from it. Children have, you have your own hero, little boy David. See, adults have their adult heroes and you have your little kid hero. You know what? We don't need physical protection or planning or armor or anything like that if we just have faith. You know what? Each of David's five stones symbolizes something spiritual. We don't know any of that from this story. And yet that's what sermons keep teaching us over and over and over again. What we do learn is what the Bible teaches us. And I don't care whether we're talking about Delilah trimming somebody's hair or about David being a little kid or David didn't wear the armor because it was too big for him. You know, what? Don't read into the Bible. Read out of the Bible. You guys have heard me preach about the difference between exegesis, reading from the Bible, and eisegesis, coming up with a conclusion and then going and reading that back into the Bible. Inherently difficult and inherently dangerous. Jonah and the whale. Loves me the story of Jonah and the whale, right? Jonah was swallowed by a whale as punishment for running away from God's leading. Yes? Fish. Big fish fan. Okay. Somebody read Jonah 1, 1 through 5, and then somebody else 11 through 17. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amitai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. When he went, he went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that, that port. After paying up the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Just through five. Yep. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. Okay, so, Jonah, pretend there's a map. Jonah's here, here in, in Israel, in this area, and God says, go to Nineveh, right? So Jonah went to Tarshish, which, depending on if it's the Tarshish we think it is, is in Spain, which is the opposite direction from Nineveh. And I love how the Bible, I love the book of Jonah, I love how it's written. It's like, he decided to go to Tarshish, and so he went to Joppa to find a ship going for Tarshish. And so he got on the ship that went to Tarshish. I mean, it's in it's a chapter over and over. Tarshish, 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 Tarshish. Nineveh, Tarshish, Tarshish, Tarshish. 
Okay, so 11 through 17. <coughs> Later. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, Oh Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O oh Lord, have done what you pleased. <coughs> then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days. Okay, so two crucial words here that I want to draw your attention to. <coughs> Number one, dog, meaning fish, right? If it had been a whale, the writer would have used the Hebrew word that they use for whale, ton. The Bible talks about the tanim, which basically is the Hebrew word for big stinking critter, what I don't know what it is. The Bible talks about that multiple times in Scripture. The, the uh, King James referred to it as dragons. The uh, NIV, it tends to either be sea monsters or jackals, depending on whether it's talking about tanim in the ocean or tanim in, in the wastelands. But the word, if there's, a, if, there's an, if there's a modern English word that best reflects the term tanim, it's monsters. It's just that big nasty critter, what I don't know what it is, and you don't want to meet in a dark alley anymore. That's the, that's the word that the Hebrews even still today use for whale. It's a big old critter. They have words for fish. This doesn't say big old critter, this said big fish. Second is mana, meaning to provide. Somebody read Jonah's words in chapter 2, verses 5 to 6, when he's praying to God. Engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, the seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath burned me in forever. You brought my life up from the pit, the Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Okay. God provided the fish to save Jonah, not to punish him. Again, when I originally, when I originally said Jonah was swallowed by a whale as punishment for running away from God, don't raise your hands. Do not raise your hands. But how many of you said, well, it's a fish, but other than that, yeah. God made a fish swallow him as punishment. Yeah. Nope. Bible never says that the fish swallowed Jonah as punishment. It was to save him because he was drowning. In fact, we don't even know that God said you have to throw Jonah overboard. Jonah said you had to throw Jonah overboard. And that didn't work. But what I love is you had I love again how Jonah was the, the writer was very, very clear. All the guys were praying to all their gods, and nothing happened, right? And then when Jonah said, "You, we've offended, I've offended, Yahweh. And they threw him overboard, and the sea was calm. Who did they give sacrifices to? Yahweh. It's like, all of these guys, and not just sacrifice, but they're like, you're the real one. <laughs> I prayed to Baal, I prayed, I prayed to Bucky, nothing happened. We did one thing and Yahweh did this. 
okay, he's my God from this point forward. That's, yep, this is my thing. That's what that part of the story is ultimately getting at. What kind of applications do we lose out on when we ignore the actual Bible and remember only the extra-biblical depictions? What do we lose out on if we forget and we think either that God, God made the storm to dissuade Jonah and turn him back, but Jonah at least told everybody, rather than turn back and go to Nineveh, I think God just wants me thrown overboard. Or, and maybe that was from God. We don't know. But what do we lose if we say, nope, God made a whale swallow Jonah as punishment. And we ignore that, no, no. We're never told anything about punishment. We're told about a storm that was supposed to essentially turn them back. We're told that he thought he should be thrown into the sea. He was drowning, and the fish saved him. What, what, kinds, of, what kinds of applications do we lose out on when we ignore all that? Can you have any applications of that for your life that we wouldn't have if we went with the standard plan of draft version of this? One thing's kind of interesting here. It said earlier he was asleep mm -hmm. in the boat, so he wasn't doing anything about the problem. Nope. When he took action, God responded. Absolutely. And, and he didn't seem to be asleep for the same reason Jesus was asleep. Right. Jesus was asleep because he's like, I'm not really scared of this. I'm, I'm sovereign over this. Jonah's asleep because he's essentially hiding from issues. Okay, what else? Yeah. things in our lives we look at and go, that was a tragedy, I hope God will help me through that. You go, no, that's what saved you from the tragedy. I, you know, I, I was an alcoholic and, and one time I wrapped my head around, or I wrapped my, my car around a tree, I swerved, I almost hit this, uh, this, this van filled with school children. And this, and that was a horrible tragedy and I had to, I had to get my life right. And you go, did you die? No. Did the school children die? No, but I mean, I was in traction for a while, and I mean, I, I went through detox in traction. <laughs> you want to go through DTs in traction, that's no fun. I mean, that was a tragedy. You go, praise God. That's what he used to get your life right. He saved you by wrapping you around a tree. That's a gift. Praise God for that accident. Because maybe the next day you would have killed a, school, a, a, a bus full of children. Maybe the next day you would have killed yourself. Maybe... Maybe, 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 maybe you would have lost your marriage. Maybe you would have done. But God said, no, I'm slapping you upside the head because that's better than you dying. I'm slapping you upside the head because that's better than you frying in hell. I'm slapping you upside the head. Say thank you. There are times where we need to look at life and go, this was a horrible tragedy. No, it's a gift fish. This is God providing something I would have never asked for because this forced me to change in a way I never would have otherwise. 
Praise God for that. How about let's talk about Jesus? Because Jesus is always fun. We get the Old Testament. Let's talk about the New Testament. Mary and Joseph laid Jesus in a manger, correct? I know, now you're all scared. Yes, yes they did. Okay, yeah. Okay, no they didn't, because technically there is no Mary or Joseph in the Bible, or Jesus. There is no Mary or Joseph or Jesus. There's a Maria and a Joseph and a Jesus in the Bible. But even that's just their Greek versions of their real names. Miriam, Joseph, and Yehoshua. Those guys are in the Bible. Not that big a deal. Later, Maria and Yosef had several other children. Jacobos, named after Yosef's father. And Yosef Jr., who I don't know why wasn't the oldest. I just, it didn't work out that way. Simon and Yodas. And then several daughters. But I always, I'm like, wait. These names get translated into English and thus standardized. From that point forward, there are Mary and Joseph and Jesus and James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, and I always worry about Simon. It's like, Joseph and Jesus and James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. You ran out of J names? There's other J names. So, the reason I bring this up is pretty much every modern English translation is going to tell you that Jesus had a brother named James. When really, Jesus had a brother named Jacobus, or really, most accurate, Yehoshua had a brother named Yaakov. That's what they would have called each other at home. Did Jesus have a brother named James? No. Yehoshua had a brother named Yaakov. But we go, eh, but this is the way I know the story. Again, I'll preach it as James and Jesus, because that's what the Bible is saying. I get it, and that's, that's what my Bible translation is saying. But what I want you to understand is, we go, wow, it's so cool that they all had English names. I hate those. No, and it matters because we start getting into the Old Testament. We go, oh, I actually heard somebody say this know, like two years ago. So he said, you know, to be honest, I don't like the Old Testament as much as the New Testament because the names are so weird. And like, you do realize the names are just as weird in the New Testament. It's just that for reasons known primarily to the translators, the New Testament, we translate into more standardized English kinds of names in the Old Testament we tend not too as much. So you still get you think people named like Yehoshaphat in the, in the Old Testament. And you have Yehoshua in the New Testament. You go, no, you get Yehoshaphat in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament, which is slightly different than Yehoshaphat. Then you just got not, not that much different. But why do we change it? Because we use the word Jesus a lot more and uh, we wanted to make it easier to say. Yeah? I think we lose some of the kind of historical connection. Jesus is really Joshua, would be the closest anglicized version Anglicized. Of the Old Testament name, and Jacob, the closest anglicized Old Testament name. And those are names in the Old Testament that we yep. know, and there's even prophecies that include names like Joshua yep. as a probably future savior type. Yeah. And there's no way we see that connection. No, you'd have to, you'd have, to have some kind of Bible study where you go, hey, did you know Jesus' name is the same as Joshua's name? Wow! It's like, yeah, anybody at the time would have known that Jesus' name was the same as Joshua's name. Look, it's a new Joshua. By the way, if there's anybody in the Old Testament that comes off smelling like a rose, it's Joshua. Huh. Go figure. That sort of thing. But yeah, and we lose... This is also part of why it's a lot easier to picture a very Nordic look at Jesus, isn't it? Jesus doesn't sound like one of those strange Jewish names. What's his brother's name? is James. Could have come from Scotland. It could have been fine. 
So Mary and Joseph laid Jesus in a manger. Get past the name, sure. Nothing else about this picture is biblical at all. No other part of this. We're never told that there were angels there. Could there have been? Sure. Were we told that? No. We're never told that there was a star or wise men there. We're never even told that they were in a stable or that there were animals there. Somebody read Luke 2, 1 through 7. They ride a donkey into town? Maybe. Right. When did this indelible cultural depiction come up? Because it's not—it's more than just a. Well, I mean, it just makes sense. No, no. We get this from somewhere. Where do we get it from? Not from the Bible. So where do we get it from? Anybody know? The Proto Evangelium of James, written in 150 to 200 A.D., specifically talks about her riding into Bethlehem on a donkey. Same fictional book from which we learn of Mary's perpetual virginity and Joseph's widower status, which is how Joseph could have other children and Jesus could have half-brothers, even though Mary never had sex. Because if she had sex, she would have sinned, because sex is inherently sin. Clearly, even sex between married people taints you, right? We learn all that from the same book from which we get the indelible mental picture of her riding into town on a donkey. Again, is that that big a deal? Um... I'm uncomfortable with having an indelible mental picture about what's going on in the Bible coming from a book that I completely disagree with everything else about the Bible about. For that matter, Jesus is born on the same night they rode into town, because that's what we mentally picture, right? They ride into town, and it's dark, and they go to the inn, and it's all full. Oh, no. Is that what the Bible says? It says sometime you know, while they're there, could have been days, even weeks after they got there, that she gave birth. May have been the first night. It wasn't necessarily, that's also from that same book that you shouldn't like anything else from. And they didn't just have a they just didn't have a nice guest room for Jesus to stay in. The Bible doesn't actually say in. It's not necessarily an inn. I know your Bible probably says in, but Mark 14, 14 is the only other context we ever hear this word in scripture. Where Jesus said, go to a house and say, Do you guys have a guest room for me to eat the Passover in? Go to a house and ask them if they have an inn. No. Go and see if you get. There's no guest room to, to lay in. So somebody read Luke 2 8 through 15. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared 
with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Okay, so where were the angels? Are we given any specific set direction as to where the angels are when the shepherds go to the manger? Yeah. I'm not saying that there couldn't have been angels there. But we are specifically told the angels that were, they were telling them then went to heaven. And the, and the shepherds went to the manger. Again, could there have been angels at the manger? Sure, I have no problem with that at all. But the fact that we love to get that mental picture of angels, the angels then went and hovered around the field. Yeah, but the Bible actually specifically tells us something about that. More to the point, did the angels specifically sing? I'm going to put him on the spot. Even Alex the other day mentioned something about the angels singing to the shepherds. Does the Bible say that the angels sang? It says that they praised God. That doesn't necessarily mean singing. Could have been. Surely could have been. But we have the heavenly host, March, the term that's used here is a military term, the, the armies of heaven coming and marching and making proclamation of the, the victory of the coming Savior. Could they have sang? Sure. Are we told that they sang? Not necessarily. What are you going to say, Michael? Right. Gives us a clue that it certainly may have been some of this. May have been. Likely conclusion, even just not, doesn't say they sang. It's possible. It is possible. But in Hebrew culture, they often chanted poetry, which you could say, well, isn't that singing? Possibly. It could also be seen as a live reading of poetry. You know, my point is, we tend to look and say they sang because of the word praised there is what most people will point to. And praise does not necessarily have to be singing. Also, the words are song, a very famous song now. Yes, yeah, so that helps. Well, somebody read, uh, well, for that matter, is it, does it say, peace on earth, goodwill toward men? Upon whom his favor rests, is what it's, it's saying there in the Greek. Peace on earth toward men who are walking with the Lord. Not necessarily, oh, everybody's going to be happy now. Somebody read verses 16 through 20. They ran to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in the manger. Then the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished, but Mary quietly treasured these things in her heart and thought about them often. The shepherds went back to the fields and flocks, glorifying and praising God for what the angels had told them, and because they had seen the child just as the angels. So, um, where are the angels in this depiction of the manger scene? Where the, where's the star? Where's the wise men? Where, where is all that? Why is Jesus glowing in this picture? Freakly glowing. Why? He's divine. He's holy. Away in a manger, right? What do you know from? What do we know about what kind of a baby Jesus was from away in the manger? No crying. No crying. He, he's not like a baby, baby, baby. He's like a glowing, silent, perfect baby. I'm sorry. I'm pretty sure they changed his diapers. And I don't think they glowed. So I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure Jesus was human in every way. He just didn't sin. And he was divine in every way. Like you and I aren't. Right? Right? Again, 
Much like what, what Michael was saying earlier, we tend to like to concretize the spiritual things. Samson had to be big and buff, not just because of some of the textual, but because he's strong, and strong guys are big and buff. That's how I mentally picture him. Moses had to be Charlton Heston. Why? Because he was a great leader. So he had to be somebody that I would look at and see as great. Jesus is holy. Okay, so magically, what did he look like that would make me say he's holy? Actually, Scripture tells us there was nothing about him that would make us look at him and go, oh, that guy's glowing and holy and hovering an inch above the ground. It doesn't work like that. But we have to mentally picture this, and we have to depict this in a way that people will go, oh, I get it. Which, which, one in the, which one in the picture is married? She's the one with the halo. Oh, okay, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, yes, go ahead. Keep in mind, too, that when a lot of the artistic representations were familiar with being created, a lot of people didn't read, or at least didn't read the Bible. And so this was a way for artists to try to show the story yeah. without words. Yeah. This is a relatively recent painting, though, so... Then we pick up on it. Yeah. And now we're back to the cultural depictions that we're used to that we keep hanging on. If we were to read Matthew 2, 1 through 2, which we, I'm not going to take the time to do anymore. If we were to read that, that's when we get our wise men and our star, right? Completely different story. If we read on and we, and we see them approaching Jesus with their gifts, the word used here is child, not infant. Luke talks about the infant being born that they go see Matthew talks about the child. Now, it can include an infant, but it could have been years after he was born. Usually when that word is used, it's more like a toddler. And the word used here is house. They're in a house now that they've... Uh, you could say, well, couldn't it have been the same house? You said it was just a stable. Maybe they, or, or maybe or it wasn't an inn, it was a house. Maybe they just had the manger and pulled it inside. Maybe this is still the same house. Maybe. But how many wise men are in the story? More than one. Three gifts. That's right, they got three gifts. Why do we think of three of them? Because they had three gifts. So mentally, it's easy to remember that by having one gift for each guy. Why do we think of them as being kings? Because the Bible never says that they're kings. If you read Psalm 72, it talks about kings bowing down before the Messiah that's coming. And surely, this is the specific episode that Solomon was writing that psalm about, right? Maybe. Also, the song, We Three Kings, doesn't make sense if they're not kings. We Three Kings of Orient are, of which the only correct words are, we are. We have official names for them, right? There's Melchior, Gaspar, and Balthazar. Those are the official names that we have for these guys. Yeah, yeah. Man, check out the little drummer boy sometime. Yeah, you get, the, you get their names and stuff. I've heard those. Is that really made up? Totally made up. Absolutely. From a popular fiction book written in the 5th century. A cultural depiction that we go, yeah, Balthazar. Wait, Balthazar is in, is in Ben-Hur. Yeah. Any of that really matter? I mean, the important thing is that Jesus was born on December 25th and 24th. Actually, you're right. It was 24th because it was in the evening. And he was mystical and he never wept and the angels and the Wise men and everybody came. I've seen all the nativities. I know how. If people want to enjoy a fictionalized and conflated story about Christ's birth, set to the time period of the birth of the Roman unconquered sun god at the winter solstice, because it makes them feel good to do that, if that's how it rings true to them, let them. 
It doesn't matter. The important thing is that they go, Jesus was born. And he brought peace to all men. Yes? And it's okay. Even if it doesn't, you know, even if it doesn't tend to actually follow the details of Scripture, or it mixes up the details of Scripture, or inserts details that aren't in Scripture, it rings true. It's a biblical-ish story. It's a Bible-ish story. It's okay, isn't it? Really, every part of you should go, no, actually. should make me uncomfortable. Is it really that big a deal to get the story right as long as it rings true? It's a holy story. Yeah, really, really, really is important to get it right. A little bit of love. A little bit of leaven. Good point. The whole loaf gets messed up. Talk about Jesus and Mary Magdalene, right? She'd been a prostitute, yes? No. Never told that in Scripture. Bible never mentions anything about that. She just It just says that she had been, he'd removed seven demons from her. That's all it says. The only personal history that we have about Mary Magdalene is that Christ exercised seven demons from her. That's it. Because no, we're never told that she was the sinful woman the chapter before who broke the, the perfume over his head, or over his feet, and, and wiped his feet down with her hair. In fact, Matthew 26 and, and John 11 and 12 suggest that, that was Mary of Bethany, not Mary Magdalene. That was Mary, the, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, who probably did that. Although there could have been two separate occasions. But either way, it wasn't Mary Magdalene. But then she almost became, for all intents and purposes, the 13th apostle, right? That's what the miniseries, the Bible, said. Yeah, I mean, she she sat there and told the disciples what they were wrong, and that they had to follow Jesus and corrected them. Now, except the actual Bible only mentions her in two, two, two contexts. One is that she was there at the crucifixion and resurrection, and the other is, earlier on in, in Luke, where she was among the women who were following Jesus, and helping to support his ministry out of their own pockets. Only two times were ever told about Mary Magdalene. So she was like a 13th apostle, right? And maybe the wife of Jesus. Right? Because it's Jesus' lineage through Mary Magdalene that forms the Sange Real, the, the real blood, the royal blood, which was miscopied as Sange Graal, the Holy Grail. Said an absolutely horrifically bad book with really bad history, based in large part on a hoax from a guy who wanted to be declared the rightful king of France. But that's a whole other thing. And I'm not dignifying any more of that malarkey with any more argument. Because if you watch the Da Vinci Code and think any part of that is historically accurate, you're on your own. You've ignored history altogether. How many cultural depictions do people follow? Because it makes them it rings true. Wow! Did you realize that the Catholic Church is actually hiding the fact that Jesus' lineage through Mary Magdalene? No, I didn't realize it because that's bogus. It just—it's not true. But more people on the street can give you more details about Christ's life from the Da Vinci Code than they can from the Bible, and that should be so. Dear Jesus, thank you that your word is here. We can crack it open. We can look at it any day, every day. We can see what's actually sitting in there. And I pray your forgiveness for all the times I read your word, even now. Look at it and say, ha, huh, I never noticed that that's the way that works.
except that I, I know the level of complexity that you have. That puck word of yours. And so I pray, Lord, help us to appreciate your infinite complexity. Help us to make the Bible, the actual Bible, our cornerstone, our, our foundation for everything. Help us, Lord, not to, to assume anything, but to judge everything by your word. In Jesus' name, amen.